Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. I'm your host, Todd Davidson, and on today's podcast, I'm thrilled to say I've had to redo this intro because they are now a Premier League club, but I have Aston Villa first team strength and conditioning coach, Paddy Moore. On today's podcast, we discuss keeping things in context when it comes to working in high-performance sport. We talk about the use of social media and how it can actually make you a worse coach if it used inappropriately. We talk about Paddy's thoughts on Paul Colbeck's work in contextual sprinting and developing position-specific speed programs. And we also talk about as I said, keeping things in context. A lot of what is said on today's podcast, if you heard out of context or you only heard a minute snippet, you could easily form a completely different view of the conversation. So I'm really pleased for those of you who have heard snippets on Instagram who are joining me for the full version of the podcast. Thank you very much and let's get into it. Hiya, Paddy. How's it going, mate? Yeah, good, Todd. Thank you. So... Uh, we spoke off air about obviously how you've had several internships and lived in different countries uh, up until this point. Obviously, it's not all plain sailing and strength and conditioning is certainly not a field anyone gets into for the money. So why do you do what you do? Um, I suppose it's similar to what I said to you off air. It's You have that ultimate goal of of probably wanting to make the players you work with better better at what they do, but also try and make them better people if you can. Like that's the ultimate aim. Um like you can make them you can make them better footballers physically, technically, whatever way you want. But if you can educate them on areas of of life like sleep hygiene or your your diet, your your nutrition, your hydration, whatever else it is like that's far far more valuable than some of the stuff you can get from them physically or or technically so like the the probably the main the main thing is probably making them making them better at what they do both from a professional standpoint and then also from a social standpoint and then obviously from my own my own personal side of things is it's like I was like any other kid growing up. I wanted to try and play professional sport. I wanted, I grew up watching football, rugby, tennis, whatever, golf. And, and you want to be, you want to be in them big moments. You want to be talked about in newspaper or on TV, but you find out very quickly that you're nowhere, nowhere near the, the skill level to do it. So the next best thing is, to be in there and helping these players achieve these these great feats or achieve something that you can you can look back in 20 30 years and it still sticks into your into the the front of your mind like about how good an occasion that was and for us it was like only a couple of weeks ago we, we beat West Brom in, in in the Hawthorns to get to Wembley and that moment when when that last penalty went in and we're running onto the pitch like that's that's what you do it. You don't do it for the money, because you can't you can't describe that feeling, and it's a feeling that sticks with you for for a very very long time, and it's what drives you every morning to get up and to do your job, basically. You know. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Like you said, about being something part of something that's bigger than yourself and not just like you said, another nine to five job where you pick up the salary. So yeah, we obviously exactly. met uh, a trend and conditioning masters at Middlesex university, but can you give the listeners a bit of an idea of what's led up to your current position as a strength and conditioning coach for the first team of Aston Villa? Obviously you've traveled a fair bit. So just give the listeners a bit more of an idea of what's led up to where you are now. Um, in 20, what was it, 2010, I started a bachelor's degree in, in sports and exercise science in University of Limerick in Ireland. And that was a four-year undergraduate course. And in the third year of that, I did a six, I think it was six or seven month kind of like student exchange with, um, with a couple of students from Long Beach University in, in Southern California. And that was obviously my first real experience of, of being away from home for any given period of time. And, and that was a massive, massive um, learning experience for me. Aside from what I learned from an actual knowledge standpoint in terms of strength and condition or sports science, but looking after yourself as an individual, finding somewhere to live, making sure that you were down at the right time to get your, 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 your washing or make sure that you were down at the right time to get your food. And it's just like, you, you, it teaches you to grow up a little bit. Um, and after, after Long Beach, I went back, finished my undergraduate in, in Limerick. Um, then I went to New Zealand for a year in, in, what was it? It would have been August or September of 20. 2014 literally just after i i graduated and i did a year's internship with uh, the hurricanes in in super rugby um and that was that was an incredible incredible experience um like working with working with some of the best snc coaches in, in the world under davy gray and and dave wildash like you cut for me my first experience of strength and conditioning i basically worked with probably two of the best S&C coaches in the world and you pick so much and often like their way of thinking was was incredible and I still use a lot of the stuff I, I picked up there for for what I do now at, at Villa and um, but like again then again it, it teaches you that responsibility of, of moving to a different country and and getting used to like being fully fully responsible for yourself and not rely on anyone because it's it's literally the other the other side of the world and you can't rely on your parents. You can't rely on your friends to do stuff for you. You got to do it yourself. And, um, I probably matured there the most as a person because of that reason, despite the fact you were working with elite rugby players, it was, it was the stuff alongside it, like trying to manage that with a job and, and, and all the bits and pieces that go with it. And, that was a fantastic, fantastic learning experience, and it's definitely, it's definitely molded me into to what I am today as not only as a as a practitioner, but also as a as a person. And when I finished with when I finished with the Hurricanes, I took up a master's placement along with the under eighteen sports science job at at Brentford Football Club in twenty would have been 2015 June of 2015 and um yeah that was that's obviously where I, I first came in contact with you and 
you know as well as I do that that course was was pretty intense. Um, for even what was it one day a week, it was pretty full on because of because of the stuff you had to do outside of it in terms of your practicals and whatnot. But trying to juggle that with with a full time role at a professional football club was was um, was incredibly probably taxing as well and like for that year you you didn't really have a social life it was just everything was strength conditioning your job your masters whatever else it was and lucky enough it worked out for me that um when they restructured the the academy system at Brentford that um they kept me on in in like an assistant strength conditioning role with the first team along with the B team which was the new name for your generic under 23s team in the academy system that is in England at the moment. And, uh, and that kind of, that was another step in, in the right direction. You get to kind of get to try stuff out with 23s players or the younger players. And then you can kind of, when you have confidence in your, your methods, you can then push it with the first team players because you have that little bit of belief that you know what you're talking about in a certain, certain extent. And, um, that was a, I absolutely loved my time at Brentford and I did that for three and a half years and um, then in, in January of, of this year after Dean Smith left for, for Aston Villa I was um, extremely, extremely fortunate that for whatever reason he decided to take me with him and yeah, I'm now five, six months into to my role at Villa and I'm, I'm settled in and I'm I'm really enjoying, enjoying, enjoying life in, in Birmingham and I'm working with a fantastic football club. You know? So obviously oh. your career path today has taken you to different countries, different parts of the world. How important is it, do you think, that prospective S&C coaches are willing and prepared to travel in order to gain that experience? Oh, it's, it's probably as important, if not more important than your willingness to, to learn and to try new ideas. Like, because professional sport is one of the very few industries, probably alongside music, that will take you to literally any corner of the world and you have to be ready to adapt to that and you have to be ready to adapt to different, different cultures, different people, and basically do it on your own. Like, you know, you can't rely on, you can't really rely on your, your parents or your friends to, to sort stuff out for you. And there's, it's kind of like what I said to you off off air. It's how many how many SNC coaches have like a fully professional organization that can give you a decent enough salary to live on within thirty minutes of where they live. Like it, it, there's very few places like that. Um, so having having the openness to to travel and probably put your life on hold for periods of time is part. Of, Part and parcel of being an SNC coach, and if you don't want to to do that, then probably become a PE teacher or or something else. Like because it it just goes with the territory. Like in one minute you could be you could be settled in England, and then all of a sudden an opportunity arises in Australia, and you have to weigh up whether you really want to go and you really want to like pack up one area of your life and and then go somewhere else and and try it, go into basically the unknown and, and try out and see what happens. Like being, being from Ireland, you kind of were left with no other option. Like it's, 
you have very, very few professional or fully, fully professional organizations. Like you have, you have the four interprovincial rugby teams and you then obviously have the Irish national team for, for rugby. You have the Irish international team for, for, for football or soccer. And you, you have one or two other roles with national teams or with institutes of sport. But the likelihood of, of getting that was, uh, was, um, was pretty unlikely, especially for someone that's coming out of university. Like, you know, they're not, they're very, they're going to be pretty reluctant to give it to a guy that has probably no real practical experience, but as an undergraduate, like, um, so yeah, it's, it's part and parcel of, of the territory that we're in that you have to travel and, and look at. For me, it's worked out perfectly. I've managed to go to, to different countries in the world that I've, I've never ever thought I'd go to. And, you know, while it's while it's a negative, it's a, it's a it's a really big positive as well about what we do, that we're not stuck in the same location for for forty odd years. Like some people are with with probably what other people will call normal jobs as such. You know, that there's nothing normal about working in professional sport and the travel and that side of things is, is all part and parcel of it. And ironically, after all this traveling that you have done, uh, you said off air that you finally feel settled in your life um, and your role. Why do you think yeah. that is? Um, there's probably, look, there's a few reasons to it. Like, I, I, I'd, be, I'd be lying if one of them wasn't the financial, the financial side of it. Obviously, with, with the little bit of financial benefit I got from coming to Villa, like, it's, obvious, it's given me the opportunity to have my own, my own flat for the first time probably a little bit of spending money that I, I never really had. Um, and that's, that's a massive part of it, that you can actually begin to switch off um, from, from work, which I know, I know it sounds contradiction, but the ability to be able to put work aside, in my eyes, makes you better at what you do because you can fully focus on, when, on your job when you need to rather than have it always rolling around in your, in your mind. And, um, and like you know as well as as well as I do, when you're trying to balance an internship and and a job and try and do a master's, like you don't have any free time. No, and your 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 head is literally all over the place. You're literally going from from one area like your job to the masters and and then into into like an internship, and you you kind of you you don't know where you are really. You're you're doing it. You're on autopilot nearly, and. You, you're just going from one to the other and then on to the next thing. And um, you don't really take, um, you don't really probably take, take notice of where you are at any given time. And, and that's probably why I feel so settled at the moment is um, because I have that ability to, to switch off and, and, and now have a bit of a, a social life as well, you know, like yeah. separate yourself. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely something I've been, guilty of in terms of you've got strength and conditioning on the brain 24 seven, pretty much. You mentioned that your old man came over for a game uh, from Ireland a few weeks ago and that kind of shaped how grateful you are or, you know, your ability not to get stuck in this uh, potentially negative trap of not having free time or maybe not appreciating the moment. What was that like for you? Oh, that was probably like when when you when you move when you move job or you move to a different different area, it, 
the first month or two is just pure and utter mayhem in your head because you have so much stuff that's new, that's different, that you're trying to process it and, and basically try and make it a routine. And it's very hard. And um, when when my old man came over to watch to watch a game probably three months ago, it was he kind of like after the game we were down in in the manager's office having a drink and he just kind of said like you don't realise how lucky you are to be working at a, a not only like a club this size because he was so proud of me as well when I was working at Brentford and he loved Brentford as well but he just said you got to enjoy this like he said you're basically living a dream that any one of the other 40,000 people in that stadium that they would have would have loved as well like you go in every day at eight o'clock in the morning or when you start when you meet the players at eight o'clock in the morning your goal is to make them make them better at what they do and go outside and kick a ball around and watch them kick a ball around or get them into the gym which is something that you have a passion for it's not, not every day someone has the opportunity to do something that they feel so strong about or are quite passionate about and like him saying you got to enjoy it it hit home how much I like that I don't know how long this opportunity will last for or how long you'll be in professional sport because it's it's an incredibly fickle game and yeah you got you got to just take a step back at times and have a look from the outside and go I am incredibly lucky to do what I do and I got to enjoy it and I got to take the big occasions I you got to take that in you know you can't be this this robot that just goes goes through the motions and pretends like that you're not like engaged in what you're doing. It's you have to you have to be able to enjoy it. And him saying him saying obviously saying that was was a massive thing for me because sometimes you need that external person to, to kind of give you a shake and go, well this is where you are now at the moment and it's black and white. You know, it's not clouded by your own perception of what you do. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Because for us, like ever since I've finished my undergraduate, all I've ever known is professional sport. And you just become trapped in that bubble of that's all you do and it just becomes normal. But what we do isn't normal. You know, no, and we, have no. to do, we do have to realize that we're incredibly fortunate to do it. Oh, absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. And like you said, when you're in that moment and the blinkers are on, you can't see the wood through the trees or whatever yeah. other cliche you want to use. It's like you said, not just the 40,000 people in the stadium, but sports science, strength conditioning, call it what you will, is an incredibly competitive industry. And there's literally thousands of prospective coaches, students, etc., who would love to be in that position. Yeah, exactly. How do you, or what influence do you think social media plays when it comes to, you said, obviously, in terms of different phases in your life, going through the masters, it was just strength and conditioning, strength and conditioning, strength and conditioning. Whereas now you're taking a step back and actually learning to enjoy yourself. What role, positive or negative, do you think social media has when it comes to strength and conditioning coaches always feeling on the go? Yeah, well, like social media is probably given like an open, open platform for SNC coaches and sports scientists to kind of like put themselves on display and nearly showcase what they have. And there, there definitely is people out there that are trying to kind of like outdo each other. You can, you can see it like without, without obviously naming names, you can, you can clearly see it. Like, and it's, uh, 
I've managed to read this whole book on developing speed whilst I'm on holidays with my friends and family. And you kind of go, like, number one, why are you putting that on social media? Like, is that for you or is it to try and impress someone else? And, And social media has created this sort of ideology that if you're not thinking of strength conditioning or GPS or whatever else it is, 24 hours a day that you're, you're underselling yourself. Whereas I'm, I've kind of realized it's the exact opposite. Like you need, you need that opportunity to unwind and you need the few hours a day to kind of go, well, let's put that to a side and, uh, and focus on the stuff that's actually important. Like, like your friends and, and, and your family, that's the stuff that that's massively important. Not, not having 25 likes on, on Twitter because you've put up a picture of yourself reading a book whilst you're on holidays or, <laughs> do you know, it, it's, it's irrelevant, it, completely and utterly irrelevant, you know, and, and people, people learn and people have an enthusiasm in various sort of levels and in different ways. And for some people, they will read papers and they'll read books all day long. And I'm not one of them people. I would much rather watch a train session on YouTube and try and pick one or two bits out of that rather than, and read a paper and that's the way I am but I think social media has created this thing that you have to you have to read 20 pages of a textbook every night you have to read um two studies a night to, to keep up with the game like you don't no don't you just got to be good at what you do and be really really good at the basics yeah absolutely and speaking of the basics obviously we preach about uh, for example, workload monitoring or recovery. Uh, you said a really nice quote in our sort of chat before that uh, you can only adapt to what you recover from. How hypocritical do you think we are as coaches when it comes to, for example, preaching about recovery and workload to our athletes, but then not being able to recognise burnout within ourselves? Oh, it's like that. You kind of it's it's baffling in the sense that it's like. It's like what you said, it's we hammer home the message that recovery is so vital for, for players, but we don't expect ourselves to do it. We expect ourselves to be at the absolute limit every day we go in there. And it's just, it's, you, you do become burnt out and you be, what happens is you begin to lose that passion for what you do. Uh, and when you lose that passion for what you do, you start to fall behind. Yeah, massively, yeah. and it's like what you said. The, the industry is so competitive that if you step off the pedal for a little bit, that you could quite easily get repa- replaced. And and for me, to make sure I have that passion for what I do, it's to step aside from it. And I know it sounds contradictory, but it's what what works for me. Um, it's like I can't pr- I can't ask a player to switch off and have a social life outside of football, and then for some reason, believe that I can't have one either, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, and, and that's it. It's, everyone needs a, the option or the, the opportunity to, to recover from what they do, whether it's, whether it's a physical load or whether it's a mental load from, from work. You know? Do you think that part of the issue with coach burnout comes from the fact that, as you said, we are very lucky to do what we do and we're blessed to do something we enjoy and therefore there's like this, I mean, I'm certainly guilty of this, this little voice in the back of your head that's like, well, this doesn't count as work because I enjoy it, 
but then as you said you're treading that fine line between i'm passionate about it to then actually i'm doing my athletes a disservice because i am so you know wrapped up in it yeah exactly like the most the the most important aspect of what we do or the area that we're going to get judged on is from eight o'clock in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon when the players are in in our eye line and our sight line within the confines of the training ground and we have the uh, the ability to work with them that's what we get judged on we don't get judged on on how many papers we read at six o'clock at, at night or whatever it is it's we have to make sure that we're as close to 100 percent when they walk in the door and make sure that we take the time the very limited time as well in professional sport that we actually have a chance to make these players better and um, and, and 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 that's it it's you can you can uh, i'm trying to say is you're probably you can try and burn the candle at both ends basically but the most important thing is the players and making sure that we're ready to work with them yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. and how important obviously without going into detail about the metrics that you do collect at villa how important is it to actually understand the player that is behind those metrics rather than just focusing on, for example, the number of accelerations, decelerations, distance covered, etc.? Yeah, well, like it, it, the metrics are what they are. They're a number. Um, and without any, without any um, background or knowledge on what that number is, it, it doesn't tell us anything. You've got to... You got to understand, obviously, what what that metric stands for, but more importantly, what does it mean to that player at that that given time? So, if if there's a drop off in in what a player is hitting or what he has been hitting in the last couple of weeks, then what's causing it? Is there a physical issue? And if there is a physical issue, then we we can address that because we're knowledgeable enough to do it. Um, but sometimes it it is like an emotional or it's a, a mental issue that the player is struggling with something at home or like new players coming from a different country, like they're not settled in. And sometimes you got to separate the number from, from the player and go, right, what is this person going through at the moment? Are they in the best state to, to perform at hundred percent in training every day? And, and sometimes they're not. And sometimes they are, they're like, they're no different to me or you or anyone else on the side of the street. They're, they go through hardships, they go through personal ordeals, they go through um, fights with family members, whatever it, whatever it is. And we have to respect that. We can't just expect a player because they're getting paid X amount or because they're a professional athlete to show up and be 100% every day. It's, it's completely unrealistic. Uh, and if you have that attitude, you just end up losing players. Um, they're human beings. That they're not robots at the end of the day. Yeah, and you got yeah. you got to respect it. It's it's like what you said. If someone has a drop off in accelerations, decels, well, why is that occurring? Sit down, and have a chat with them, and they might actually tell you something that makes that issue so quick and easy to fix, rather than trying to go, well, it's because his his aerobic system is dropping, or it's his repeat speed work has been dropped off in the last couple of weeks. You know, maybe he's just mentally exhausted from from moving to a different country or maybe his maybe he's just had a kid you know and he's getting two hours of sleep a night you know 
And that's where the little conversations you have with a player are massive because you get to understand that. And then you can, you can use that quantitative data to then kind of back up what you feel through your gut. And, and that's it. You know, it's, 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 it is very, very simple at times. You can yeah. try and overcomplicate yeah. it if you want. Yeah, and I think that's uh, almost uh, like with the way that the pendulum swings one way and then the other in S&C, you'll go from this shiny new tool that measures X, Y, Z to then thinking, actually, does this help us in the context of our performance? Yeah, exactly. How do, on the subject of context of performance, obviously sports that are distance-related or time-related, you could arguably oversimplify it to if, for example, a sprinter gets faster, the shot puts flies further, then we've done a good job. How can you measure or how do you measure performance in a sport that is as multifaceted as football? Um, it's probably look trying to get as many viewpoints on it as possible. So like over the last couple of years, my whole mindset on performance has changed from just like either the football or the, the, the physical side to go and right, there's a physical side in football or there's a technical side to football, there's a tactical side to football, but then there's the, also the mental slash emotional side. Uh, and you try and you try and bring all four of them together, really, uh, and and base base an opinion around that, really. Um, like if if we're trying to I don't know make make a winger better, then the first thing that causes should be the style of play that the club or your head coach want to implement because at the end of the day that's what we're getting based or being judged on is is that ability to perform on a Saturday at three o'clock and um, everything has to f- filter into that and, and it's trying to look get as many little viewpoints as possible and integrate it as one um, really that it's I know it sounds complicated but it's actually pretty simple when when you spell it out for yourself one of the one of the really interesting chats we had off air was about uh, Paul Colbeck's work in contextual sprinting. And you gave an example of how uh, a testing battery might look different for say a winger or a center half or why the context in which they use their speed is arguably more important than just the physical attribute of say their not to five meter acceleration. Can you just expand a little bit on that? Um, yeah, so I've obviously I've looked into a little bit of the contextual sprinting um, work that's been it's been up on social media quite a bit, but it it, it really is common sense. It's a centre half is completely completely different to to what a winger is, and uh, and being able to understand the fundamental differences to that from a physical aspect again, from the technical aspect and from the tactical and emotional aspect. That's so important to to getting the best out of a player. Like you can, how many times? Like for example, you you train them in, in speed work. How many times does a centre half just run linearly for ten meters from a split stance position? Like they'll go out, they'll press, and all of a sudden the ball gets flipped in behind. So you got to work on a couple of different different attributes. You have to work on a little, a little acceleration a deceleration, a cross step, and then your, your acceleration work. And it's trying to, to hone into what 
you might not know as a as an SNC coach and, and trying to gain the information that the technical staff know and bring the two of them together. Like we will work as as two departments to make a to make a player better. You know, there's no like, oh, this is what the sports science department has to do. This is what the the technical staff have to do. It's right. What do we have to do to get this player better? If it's acceleration, if it's whatever it is, how do we make that as match like as possible? Um, and like for the winger, it, it it depends once again on the style of play. Like if you have a if you have a manager that wants a winger to be attacking the fullback and to stand him up and then to shift and go and put across him, well, it looks a lot different to having a manager that wants to play on the counter attack. You know, because if you have a manager that plays on the counter attack, you might have to train your wingers to be able to run at very, very high speeds with the ball not 10, 15 yards ahead of them at any given time. Whereas if you want a quick, pacey, agile winger, it's, well, how do we get them really good at the change of direction stuff while also maintaining control of a football? Or how do you get him to use his sharp five-meter burst against a defender when they're static? And it's trying to incorporate the physical side of that whether it's increased their strength whether it's increased their rate of force production along with well can they actually control the ball and shift it and go yeah. and yeah. and it's just tying the two two areas in together basically you know and off the back of that one of the things you said to me that a player has previously said to you is that They've said, you can tell if someone's training you from a textbook or training you to get better. Uh, yeah. I kind of, I think it kind of follows off the back of what you're saying there in the sense that not all players are exactly the same. But could you, again, elaborate on what your interpretation of what you think he meant by that? Um, basically, it was players want staff, whether it's technical or sports science, surrounding them that, understand what the game actually entails on a Saturday. Um, like, it's going back, going back to the centre-half topic again. Like, if I just focused on, on the centre-half getting really quick in a straight line, he's probably going, am I a centre-half or am I a 100-metre sprinter? Uh, and it's bringing in the subtle little differences like, the change of body angle, working on different foot or uh, movement patterns in terms of footwork. It, it, if a player sees that, he's going to be so engaged in what he does because he can see the link to what you're doing on the training pitch, what he's going to have to do in front of 30,000, 20,000 on a Saturday at 3 o'clock because that's what they're ultimately getting judged on. It's like what I've said to you off air. It's You very, very rarely get a sporting director that will come up to you and go, do you know what? Because you increased his back squat by 20 kg, we're going to offer him a new three-year deal. It's now can he perform effectively on a Saturday when, when we need him to? Um, like That's the whole objective of what we do, is to create better footballers, not to create better athletes. You know? And it's an interesting point you say there, because, for example, uh, my work with youth athletes, one of my uh, philosophies, if you want to call it that, is to improve the size of the athlete's movement toolbox. But for context, these are young athletes who 
I mean, as a kid, I thought I was going to be a professional footballer. And then when I got into boxing, I remember doing a piece of A-level work where we had to sort of plot our sporting history. And in my yeah. head, I was going to box until I was 28. And then, uh, long story short, went to uni and that, uh, that plan didn't materialize. And now I'm into powerlifting. So from a young athlete, that perspective is different. So why is it, and, and I know it's a very obvious question, but what do you think people are potentially missing when they work in elite sport and they come out with, say, a generic quote like, I'm here to make better athletes? as opposed to, as you said, making them better footballers? Well, there's probably, it's probably not understanding what your role is within that organisation. Like, we're not the most important people in a football club or in the vast majority of sports clubs. Like, if you're a sprinter or if you're a javelin thrower or whatever, you're probably you you probably are one of the most important people then but there's so much more to football and and most field sports that we're only a small small part of that and everything we have to everything we do has to have the backdrop of making them better at that sport like going back to your your work with with youth athletes that's fantastic like make them as multi or make them as multi-sport as possible, getting to move incredibly well because you have the opportunity to work with, you have the time period to work with that without having to worry about probably the drop-off in performance because they're learning so many different skills. We don't have that luxury in, in, in professional sport. Like, you need results and you need them quick. And you need to just kind of fast-track what you do with the ultimate goal of going, right, how is he going to become a better footballer? And as like going back to that earlier point, it's interlinking the two rather than having your sports science staff here and your football staff at the other end of the spectrum. It's bringing them closer together and um, being interlinked. And a question I haven't put in the uh, podcast notes, but it's kind of similar to how you were saying the strategy for say a centre half and a winger is potentially or is going to be very different. How do you as a strength and conditioning coach avoid actually getting in the way or hindering performance if that makes sense um it's kind of like what i i, I said a little bit earlier it's it, you understand your role at the club you know um you understand that ultimately you get judged on what the result on a saturday is you know um not on probably the athletes you produce and, and at times it's frustrating because at the end of the day like we're we're s coaches and we want to produce the next Ronaldo, who's an absolute physical specimen. Or you want to produce the next Wilfred Zaha, who, when he runs with the ball at full pace, he's an absolute joy to watch from, a, from an athletic standpoint. But we, it's, not, it's not that important. No, no. That, that bit isn't as important as putting the ball into the goal. That's the ultimate aim of, of the game. And, the physical side is linked into that, but that's it. It's linked into it. it the physical aspect isn't the game. Yeah. The yeah. technical and tactical aspect is the big bits of the game. And the physical and the emotional side of that, that just feeds into it to create a better footballer. Um, there are very, very few Premier League footballers that are there just because they're really good athletes. Like They're incredibly gifted technically as well. Uh, and 
once you understand how many variables there are to performance, you begin to kind of see what your what your spot in that organization is or you, your level of importance in that organization is you know yeah and we've we certainly all had those athletes who you'll get them in the gym and they'll be an absolute freak of nature and smash any physical test you've got but then they're on the bench because they can't apply that physicality within the skill side of the sport yeah exactly like you probably you probably see that maybe at the lower level lower level league where you can probably dominate a game more based on what your physical attributes are rather than when you get up to the, the top end of like a premier league premier league standard player like you watch man city play yeah they're incredibly incredibly fit and their style of play is heavily built around pressing and counter pressing which requires athletic players but they're incredibly gifted at football. Like, and, and that's why they're at Man City, is yeah. because they're incredibly, incredibly gifted footballers. Not because they're freaks of nature. Like, David Silva's not. Probably like someone you'd stick up on the wall and say, that's the athlete you want to be. Maybe Kyle Walker is, and that's why he's yeah. a right back. And it's, it's understanding that Within the game, there's also certain positions that will require different physical attributes and certain positions will require you to have more weight on their physical ability, maybe rather than their technical work. And it's understanding how different positions, like a goalkeeper, for example, their main objective is probably to keep the ball out of the net. So to do that, you have to be incredibly agile, incredibly quick, incredibly powerful. So you're probably looking going, well, maybe that's actually one position that us as SNC coaches really need to hammer home with them and with the coaching staff to go, look, if I can make him so really, really powerful, he probably has a greater chance of getting to that ball that's going into the top corner, you know? And it's it's trying to gain an understanding of what what each position holds, but also what the game's about and, yeah. and understanding yeah. where us as as S&C coaches or sports scientists fit into that, you know? And if it was all about physical attributes, then uh, me and you would just use the strength and conditioning knowledge and we'd be probably playing in the Premier League ourselves. So uh, yeah. <laughs> there's uh, probably something for the skill. I'm not sure about well. that. Wow. <laughs> so on the, subject of, uh, on the subject of physical performance, obviously there's definitely going to be a lot of context as to, for example, what tests you would use, what you have at your disposal. Um, but just for, for example, listeners who maybe they play Sunday league, or maybe they're wondering how testing batteries might go from, uh, no budget to unlimited budget. What would be some of the key, uh, physical qualities that you would look to test and why are these physical qualities important for football? Um, well, probably with a little bit of my work with, with Brentford previously was, was to develop probably like positional profiles from a physical standpoint and you, you go through I suppose GPS data testing data and you try and find is there is there a link between like GPS data physical strength scores you're getting in the gym or scores you're getting from out, out on out on the field and and you try and create this physical profile of what an ideal center half should look like or what an ideal what an ideal um, right back should look like compared to a striker and and 
with the ultimate aim of when the recruitment process starts that you go to a game, you kind of go, well, I can see him fitting into our style of play, really. Um, and that's kind of, that's kind of guided our, that's kind of guided the, the testing protocol of a few clubs that I've been involved in and also a few clubs that I've, I've, I've been to, uh, to visit recently. Like, if you're going from, we'll start off at the elite level, you'd obviously have your aerobic system testing, and whether that's a, an MAS, whether that's a VO2 max, whatever it is, um, a baseline for that. And then you can obviously have your strength and strength scores, which can be whatever, whatever lift it is, 3RM, 1RM. You can use gym wear to get force, force velocity curves and track that over the course of the season, whether to see someone's actually improved or not in strength and that ability to reduce power quickly. Um, you can also look at, obviously, like counter move and jump for your lower body power. You could name a hundred different tests. If you have the ability, check, check someone's saliva, get a hormone response test that you can look at their recovery 48, 72 hours after a game. What, what you can look at any aspect of performance even like what we were talking about off air, you can you can get sleep bands now that you can you can test and monitor someone's sleep quality. You could look at that and you can get as much data as you want, but it all boils down to testing what you can actually address, what you can impact, what you can change, rather than just collecting numbers. So like for example, if you don't have a massive gym culture. At a, at a club or an organization is is there much point in taking a, a, a massive in-depth look at someone's strength score someone's power score because you're never going to get the opportunity to really address it if you only get one gym session a week to be perfectly honest with <laughs> yeah. you do you know it like yeah find your tick in the box of going yeah i've collected this data and i can present it to someone but you're not really doing anything with it you know, whereas if you go to Sunday League and you literally have a stopwatch, well, you can still get a really good aerobic test out of like an MA, a six-minute MAS and you can base your your programming for the rest of that year on them scores and you just test, retest, has it, has it worked? If not, we need to change the program. If it has worked, you continue on or you make subtle little differences to get that extra little bit out of it. But it all boils down to testing what you can actually affect, what you can change, what has meaning in the game and what you believe will make someone a better athlete. And in terms of presenting those results to players, you've said, for example, you may well lose a centre-half very quickly if you're chatting to him about, say, top-end speed, the same way you chat to a winger about top-end speed. How do you present the results back to players in a way that's going to get the desired response from them? Um, I suppose in, over the course of the last what, what, four or five years that I've been involved in sport, I've, I've seen and I've tried many, many different methods. And like you go for this, the box standard of bang, you post all the results up in the gym or you let all, every player know what they are on and what their speed score is, what their strength score is. And you hope that like the natural competitive environment that's in professional sport that players go well I'm at the bottom of the list I'm going to make sure that when we test again in two months time that I'm going to be in the middle of the list or 
you, you hope that the top two are always constantly trying to push themselves in the gym to, to be the number one. But then you also have to kind of take a step back and go, like what we said, is max speed for a centre-half versus a winger going to be the same? No, it's not. But then you break it down to positional positional scores. And, and ideally, like the ideal scenario would be that every, every club in England released testing data based on positional differences. And, and you could kind of create a logbook of where player A stands in respect to like the average centre-half in, yeah. in England. Or, and that's another way to do that. You just make it so specific to that position that you, you, only, you only give them the information you believe they need to know. Yeah, and you only collect the information you feel is important to make them better, you know, and that's it. And going back to what I said earlier, you end up creating positional testing batteries rather than just did a generic box standard yo-yo test and 10, 30 meter sprint times. And it's, it, it boils down to what, number one, what you have at your disposal in terms of resources, facilities, and, uh, and also how much time you have on your hands, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing worse than testing a physical attribute that realistically you don't have a capacity to change because the adaptations take so long. Yeah, well, like it all came from, I remember, I think I must have been with either the under-18s or the under-23s and we were going through some testing and and like we were looking at, I think it was MAS scores from the first day of pre-season. And while like we were kind of picky with one or two of the strikers, they went, yeah, but it might change the direction and my sprint speed is so much better than anyone else's in the team. And that's what matters. And you kind of go, do you know what? He's actually right. Yeah. Like that's more important for a striker and a winger rather than can he, does he have the best aerobic capacity in the team? No, maybe that, that's probably more important for essential midfielders or your box-to-box midfielder, you know? Like, we don't test goalkeepers on yo-yo. Yeah. On the yo-yo score. Why? Because it's irrelevant. Um, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, like, it's irrelevant for strikers. It's where does it fit in yeah. terms of yeah. its importance within the list of physical attributes you need to have to be a footballer. Um, so given your, obviously given your experience uh, with the Hurricanes, with Brentford and now with Villa, how has your philosophy towards your... Uh, uh, towards strength and conditioning changed, if at all, and what is how would you summarise your philosophy as it currently stands? Um, I wouldn't say it's changed; it's probably developed over over the last four or five years. Um, my, if you want a philosophy in, in terms of uh, a one a one liner, it's probably trained a person, not the player. Um, so it's based around trying to develop a relationship with the player, with the, with your coaching staff, and and try and get try and educate them, trying to to get to understand why they're doing something rather than just accept that they're going to do something because they're they're told by a fitness coach. It's like it came from my first experience in SNC with with um, with the Hurricanes, and I remember the two lads, Davy Gray and and Dave Wildash, going find out what makes a player tick or what makes them motivated. Why are they doing it? And if you find that out, it makes your life so much easier. Like, are they being a professional rugby player to 
to become an all black? Are they doing it to buy their parents a, a new house? Are they doing it to feed their family? It's find out what makes them tick. Use that motivation and whether it's put it on a program, top of the program, whether it's you put it on, on their locker, that you just have a picture of something that motivates them. You get so much more out of a player that they come in every day and they're going, yeah, this is why I'm here. You know, this is why I'm doing it. So I need to give 100% to it. But you can only do that if you build a relationship with the player and actually trying to get to understand them on a, on a personal level. And for me, that's fundamental to, to be an S&C coach. You can have, like, you could develop the best program in the world and have everything periodized to the minute detail, reps and sets, uh, rest periods, cluster sets, whatever you want. But if the player doesn't do the program, it's completely and utterly irrelevant. Yep. Whereas yeah. if you understand what makes that player tick and you can build that relationship with them to go, do you know what? My role here is to make you better so that you can achieve this goal, whether it's to be an English international, whether it's to play with the All Blacks, whether it's to buy your parents a new house, whatever it is. Well, they will come in and drop out, give every ounce of sweat and energy they have to that program. And I would rather, I would much rather a simple, basic program done at 100% than the fanciest program done at 10% because you won't get any results out of it. And that's what it boils down to. And that's what SNC is in a nutshell, you know. And I think not so much that it's a mistake, but just obviously the way that naturally uh, things that are put out there on social media get you into the way of thinking. Obviously, you learn about the physiological adaptations. But as you said, if there's no intent behind the exercise you're doing, you're not going to be able to drive those physiological adaptations anyway. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it boils down to work put in is what you will end up getting out at the other end. You know, you, you can't, you can't fast track it. You can't, you can't like put, you can't just hope that because you have a brilliant program that that's going to take care of itself. It needs the actual time and effort. It needs the player to be in there lifting. It needs the player to be outside running. It needs the actual physical interaction to get the results rather than just having everything on an Excel spreadsheet and, uh, and, because everything will always will always look and work perfectly on Excel. <laughs> it's, it's it's a lot different on a pitcher in a gym. You know, when you're trying to when you're trying to get a guy who's never done a gym session in his life, who's who's on a lot of money to be a footballer, and then you try and get him into the gym. Well, what's motivating him to do it, or why? How do you get him actively engaged in it? Because you you it's like what I said. You go and you try and find out what motivates them to be a footballer. And then you hopefully hopefully use that to, to light the spark with them to then get them involved in the gym, you know? Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I like to start these podcasts by asking coaches, why do they do what they do? Because if we just dive straight into, I don't know, what testing battery they use or what's their favorite exercise for this or that or whatever, it, it just doesn't work. It's got no, no context on which to yeah. hang your hat on. Exactly. Context is key to everything. Um, speaking of uh, context and obviously exercise selection, being as you are my first football strength and conditioning coach uh, on the podcast, uh, it would be remiss of me not to bring up the subject of Nordics. So uh, good, bad and ugly. Thoughts on the Nordic as a hamstring risk reduction exercise? 
Um, well, you put me on the spot a little bit. Um, probably I've had many, many, I wouldn't say heated arguments. I've, I would say discussions, to put it lightly, about the use of, the use of Nordics and their place within uh, an SNC program and, and whatever else. And it comes down to the, the key thing is context. Where does that exercise fit within the context of the players' uh, training potential, their potential to adapt? Like we said, it, we spoke about it off air. It's on the first day of preseason. Would you get every player to back squat? Would you get every player to clean and jerk because you believed it was the because you believed that this was the 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 path where you wanted your department to go down, or because four or five papers had recently published information to say that the back squat will stop every injury known to man? No, you wouldn't. Um, you'd you'd look at every player individually and go, is he in a position? is he or she in a position to to withstand this exercise and to actually get the benefits from it rather than just inflict more fatigue and uh, and um and harm on them uh, and that's where my biggest i suppose my biggest annoyance with this whole kind of nordic ideology comes it's it's not one size fits all you can't have that you can't just you can't come in on the first day of preseason and just decide that we're going to implement uh, a Nordic program for every single player. Like it has to be, has to be periodized properly. You have, you have to earn the right to do a Nordic. You can't, you can't just do it. You know, you have to show. You have to demonstrate that you have the strength capacity to to tolerate it. That you're efficient enough at various other exercises like a hamstring eyes a hole like an rdl like even your your band or your aided nordics with the bands like you have to show that you're proficient and and you're good at them before you can even lay your hands on a nordic like getting a 17 18 year old who's never done a gym session in his life and then all of a sudden it's like right two sets of three on nordics and player comes in the next day and his hamstrings are on fire you're kind of going well, number one, you've you've probably lost him because he's gone. He associates gym work with with pain and with, with doms rather than with something that makes him physically better. Uh, and it look being being a practitioner and being a researcher are two very very different things. And I think we have to recognise that. You know, we don't have this ideal. Like if if we went to do a study on the day to day life of a footballer, we probably wouldn't get it through the the marking criteria because there'd be probably so many factors that will be so variable that they would probably say you can't base any reliability or validity on the study. But yet all of a sudden we go right. This paper said this is right, so everyone's going to do it. It doesn't make sense to me, you know. And like, don't get me wrong, I'm not I'm not the most um, uh, like up to date with research, I'm not. I'm not the most knowledgeable SNC coach in the world. But one thing I do know is that you have to plan, you have to structure your program based on the ability and the potential of of a player that you're working with. Yeah, 
and uh, without well, without naming names, chap I've previously spoken to on the podcast, we spoke off air about how one of his technical coaches had said that, oh, I've seen this research on the Nordic. I really think the athletes should be trying it. And the strength and conditioning coach said, okay, we'll bring you into the session and you can demonstrate the Nordic for uh, all the athletes and we'll see how that goes. Yeah, exactly. Like we, we, it's like what we spoke about off air, it's do we actually do Nordics in our own gym sessions? Probably not. Why? Because they give you really bad doms for the first couple of times that you've done them. And then we go, we kind of go, no, I don't like this. And we push it. <laughs> we do. Like we push it to the side. But yeah, we just expect the players to go, right, you're going to do it. And then, you know, we're actually going to get you to train and sprint the following day as well. Like everything has to be within context. Yeah. Like you said, like, how many? I, yeah. We could, we could find five papers that say Nordics are brilliant and I could probably find another three that say they're not as effective as a, as a different exercise. You, you can always, you can structure research and you can structure a study to get what you want out of it, really, if you, if you wanted to. Yeah. yeah. That, that's, my, that's my belief on it. Yeah, as you said, as a coach, I feel like within reason, I should be able to demonstrate to a certain level of proficiency anything I ask my player to do. Um, yeah. obviously no one's going to ask me, can I stick, uh, can I stick a 20 yard shot in the top corner? But yeah. if someone's like, right, why are we doing Nordics or at least show me how you do a Nordic? And I'm there saying, well, actually I physically don't have the capacity to do it, but yeah. you've clocked up however many meters of high speed running and I'm still going to chuck this on top of you. Exactly. It's just, everything's about context or context and where it fits within that athlete's, um, progression physically like if you were in the position that every player had the level of strength that they could they could um successfully do nordics then by all means put them in because you probably get your you probably get the biggest bang for your buck doing that exercise you know everything everything about the movement is linked to, to sprinting and high speed run you know and if you can do that by all means put it in and get your athletes to be fantastic at it but make sure that, as we've said, they've earned the right to do it rather than you've just put it there in front of them and they just have to cope with it. Yeah, yeah. And as you said, there's a, this, I've spoken to a few people in football um, about Nordics and you see so many papers that obviously preach about how effective it is and it, you can't dispute the evidence they're putting forward in that regard. But there's very few papers that show how you would lead into that. And as you said, exactly. the, the context of where that is in the program as opposed to this is just the program is often left to well guesswork really yeah yeah and just just wrapping up the last couple of questions if you could observe any coach or be part of any coaching team for the day um to see what they do with their athletes which coach would you like to observe and why um i i would probably i was going to sound quite strange but I would love to spend a day or two and just watch what Garrett Selkate does um, because like he's, he's single-handedly changed the whole environment surrounding the English national team even like the underage national teams players want to play for, for England again what, what, he, what he's done for the likes of Raheem Sterling on on like a social level as well to give them that confidence to, to speak out about such like things such as racism 
Like he would never have done that before. Gareth Southgate became England manager. Like you, you, he puts football in context to 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 real life, and he obviously he's obviously incredibly astute at what he does. But I would love to see how he he gets players to buy into what he does. You know, because every player like players want to go and play for England again, whereas they didn't ten years ago. Yeah, they want yeah. to they want to play for England and. That's what, uh, that's what I'd be more interested in. Like, you can go and you can look at different S and C coaches, but I think we're all like within five, ten percent of each other in terms yeah. of like the stuff we do. But it's the little bits such as like player buy-in, creating the culture that breeds high performance. And at the moment, he seems to be seems to be one of one of the best at doing it. And, I'd obviously, I'd love to go and have a look at the All Blacks as well and see, see what they do. And um, obviously, I've spent a bit of time with one or two of the players through the Hurricanes. But to be in that environment will be, will be very, very, very interesting as well. Brilliant. And in terms of recommended resources, whether it be someone for me to follow on social media or have a chat with, or maybe the latest book you've read, podcast you've listened to, what would be your uh, recommended resources? Um, well, like I, it's been it's been preached to death, but the book Legacy I found incredibly beneficial for for um, my coaching philosophy. Um, it ties into what I believe that we should do as coaches, and we should allow our players kind of develop or develop themselves and, and foster and develop the people around them. Um, so in terms of like a reading material, that's that's one I would I would personally recommend. I know it's been it's been recommended to death, but there's a there's a reason it has been because it's a very very good book. Um, obviously, your podcast is very good. <laughs> just just get, just just getting that in there, but um, not like obviously pacey performance. That that's a, quite another quite another decent one. Um, I I'm don't really follow that many on Instagram and Twitter just for that reason. I think it's, I think it just becomes a, a little bit of, uh, of like a, a display show. Yeah. And, uh, I'm very hesitant to, I'm very hesitant to kind of like go and say, I'll oh, have a look at X, Y, and Z because it's out of context as well. Like that Martin Bouchet, I think it is. Yeah. Who works at PS- yeah. Who works at PSG. Like, he that's a very very good resource to have because it 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 cuts away all the the like the crap out of out of research studies and gives you the facts which which is what what we want when we don't have a hell of a lot of time to to sift through 15 pages of of research articles um so he's one i would recommend for twitter or instagram and yeah that's probably it i don't think there's yeah. there's much more mate to be perfectly honest with you no, that's perfect. And uh, final one before I, before I let you go. If coaches, athletes are listening to this, what's the one key thing that they would you would like them to take from this podcast? Um, there's probably two things: build build a relationship with the player, and or build a relationship with the person and not the player. <laughs> um, after I've just battered on for about half an hour about it, um, and. The second one would be, I've just gone completely blank. 
But the second one would be remember where your role fits in context of performance. Like performance is not just physical performance. Performance is performing on a Saturday or whatever area of you work in. Just remember where you fit into that and don't try and think you're you're more influential or you're less influential than you actually are. I think that's the biggest thing. Perfect. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time, mate. And uh, fingers crossed by the time the episode goes to air, you'll be uh, working for a Premier League club. Yeah, hopefully, mate. I appreciate, appreciate you taking the time. My absolute pleasure, mate. Thanks once again. All right, top man. Take it easy, mate. All right, speak soon. Bye-bye. See you, mate. Bye. Thank you for listening to episode nine of the Platform to Perform podcast. Uh, Massive congratulations to Paddy and the rest of the strength conditioning and sports science team at Aston Villa Football Club, who are once again a Premier League club. I think it's important to keep into context what Paddy's saying in regards to the contextual sprinting side of things. I think oftentimes it's too easy as strength and conditioning coaches to say that's not our job as soon as the ball becomes involved. But the truth is the players will have much more trust in you if you can show that you understand the game and you're there to make them better where it matters, not necessarily make them better at your testing battery. A question I have for a lot of guests is to elaborate on their idea of what sports specificity is, because I think it's a very poorly misunderstood term and it's definitely something I've been guilty of myself. But it's not about what's sports specific, it's about what's appropriate. In Paddy's situation, where they're working with professional footballers, What's appropriate to them is stuff that's going to help them be better on the pitch. Now, if you're working with youth athletes, as myself and Paddy discussed earlier in the podcast, you may just want to be teaching them effective sprint mechanics and you can talk about transitioning this into more sports-specific stuff the more developed that athlete becomes. An area that I'm particularly keen in and have been looking into of late is perceptual motor skills and the ability to read the game. I would recommend... Uh, shameless plug myself and Shane Fitzgibbon talking about this perceptual motor skills side of things in episode number 10. I recommend Paul Colbeck's work on conceptual sprinting within football, which I'll link within the show notes. If you've got any feedback for me or you just want to follow me, you can follow me by searching Todd Davidson P2P Coaching on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thank you very much for listening. I'll catch you again in the next episode.